There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by audible.com. If you'd like to get a free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke, or just click one of the buttons on my website that says audible. Okay, right. Let's start this episode. And here we go. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I hope you're well. hope you're fine. hope you're comfortable. I hope you're strapped in and ready for a brand new episode of Luke's English Podcast. What year is it? That's my first question. What year is it? Well, of course, it's 2015 while I'm recording this. And in fact, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, which took place in 1940. And since this is such a pivotal moment in British history, I thought it would be appropriate to cover it in some way in an episode of this podcast. Also, I was asked uh, fairly recently by a listener in the comments section of my website to talk about the story of the Battle of Britain, specifically uh, the role of one particular group of pilots known as Squadron Number 303. So here it is, the story of one of the most important moments in modern British history, the Battle of Britain, and the contribution made by a small group of pilots. The Battle of Britain is often cited as a proud moment in British history, particularly by nationalistic Brits who also believe that we shouldn't let any immigrants into our country. Squadron number 303 killed twice as many German fighters as any other squadron, and one pilot in particular became something of a flying legend with a record number of kills. But the thing is, these heroes of the Battle of Britain weren't actually British. They were foreigners fighting in British-made hurricanes and spitfires. Where did these brave and skillful pilots come from? Well, it was Poland. So this episode is not just a history lesson about Britain, but also a bit of a shout-out to my Polish listeners out there, and I know there are quite a few of you. Um, if you're not Polish, then I hope that you can still appreciate the telling of this story of danger, bravery, and global warfare. So, the Battle of Britain... First of all, I think it would be appropriate to uh, play a short extract from a speech by Winston Churchill. And in fact, I'm going to play you a few little Winston Churchill extracts during this episode to give you a chance to listen to uh, this legendary public speaker. And um, the first extract is um, part of a speech that Churchill made just before the beginning of the Battle of Britain. And here it is. The Battle of France is over. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, 
all Europe may be freed, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Okay, so that's um, part of Churchill's famous finest hour speech. Um, And that gives you a sense of the importance of this moment, not just in British history, but in global history too. So what was the situation? Let's, Let's begin. Let's begin telling the story. What was the situation? Well, let's go back to the 7th of September, 1940. Okay, picture the 7th of September, 1940. Northern France was occupied by the Germans and airfields everywhere across northern France were covered in bombers. These are planes designed to drop bombs, loaded up and ready to begin bombing raids on strategic targets all over the UK. Hitler was basically about to take a big crap all over Britain. Okay, this was a year, uh, this was a year after Britain had declared war on Germany, after Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia and then Poland. And it had been a pretty good year for Hitler. He'd basically marched across most of Western Europe and seized it, just like Napoleon and the Romans had done before him. Hitler had a pretty effective strategy, which we now call Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, which involved using planes to uh, to bomb the crap out of an area before sending in infantry and tank divisions to quickly mop up um, enemy troops. And uh, it was devastatingly effective as it took advantage of speed, mobilised mechanical heavy weapons, surprise and the general disorganisation of the enemy as a result of the air bombing. So he used this blitzkrieg approach to great effect in the invasion of Poland and then the invasion of the Netherlands, uh, Belgium and France. And um, in just one year, Hitler's troops were in control of large parts of mainland Europe. Um, British forces had been forced to evacuate the continent after effectively being chased chased away by the Germans. There was a big retreat and escape from France at Dunkirk on the northern coast. Um, So it was a big military defeat for the Brits, who basically escaped from France back to England um, and then ended up in a pretty desperate situation, if you can imagine. So the Nazis controlled the continent. Uh, The USA wasn't in the war yet, so we couldn't rely on their full assistance. So Britain was basically alone, cut off from the mainland, just separated from the enemy by a few miles of water, waiting to be attacked and invaded by the Germans. It wasn't a good position to be in. Um, Perversely, this is often the moment that many Brits feel very nostalgic about. People tend to look back, or many people look back on this moment, with sort of rose-tinted glasses. Um, As I said, it's often referred to as our finest hour. I think that's really because of what Churchill said, but sometimes it's kind of, 
it seems to be twisted a little bit. I think that there may be something in the British consciousness that actually enjoyed the idea of being completely separated from the rest of the continent, as if it kind of clarified the us-against-them attitude of some people. And this was perhaps our darkest hour. Whether it was our finest hour or not is another question, but it was certainly our darkest hour. Um, We faced total oblivion and invasion by the Nazis. Uh, Certainly, thousands of Brits were going to be killed, um, and... um, Like uh, beloved properties and national monuments would be destroyed in the bombing. But for some Brits, looking back on the Battle of Britain, this was a moment to be proud of, like it made us a great nation or something. Um, I suppose the reason people say that is because it was a time when Britain showed some character and spirit and strength, and the whole country sort of pulled together and formed a united front. And of course, in the face of this, um, this invasion... Uh, by the Germans, uh, Winston Churchill made another famous speech uh, in which he um, encouraged people to stay strong uh, and uh, encouraged people to be brave and to never give up. So I'm now going to play you another uh, speech um, and uh, let's see, I'm going to find that speech for you and then play it to you. Okay, here it is. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if which I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving then our empire beyond the seas armed and guarded by the British fleet would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old Okay, so it was pretty rousing stuff, um, um, his speeches. Um, Ultimately, Britain did survive the invasion attempt, and I'm going to tell you the story of that in a moment. Um, People do feel proud of that, but I think it's quite ironic that many of the people today who are still nostalgic for that moment are also the ones who preach a kind of politics, uh, a certain kind of politics, things like anti-immigration, nationalistic values, basically something approaching a kind of English or British fascism. They're always the ones who loved that moment when Britain was alone facing the invading hordes from the continent. And I think it's ironic because during that battle, we were fighting against fascism. And now it seems that it's the fascists at home who like to remember it. Anyway, um, there it was, summer, uh, late summer in Britain, 1940. It looked pretty bleak. Um, Hitler decided that uh, before attempting any kind of land invasion, he would attempt to thoroughly smash the UK from the sky. Um, And um, he aimed, first of all, to attack uh, 
Royal Air Force bases in strategic positions around the country. Royal Air Force, that's um, also known as the RAF. So if I say RAF, I'm talking about the Royal Air Force. So first of all, he planned to target the RAF um, bases. And then later, he decided to target industrial centres in the big cities uh, and key points of infrastructure and even some national monuments and residential areas. And the aim there was to cripple the country, both physically and mentally. So it was pretty scary stuff. Um, On the 7th of September then, 1940, the Luftwaffe, um, that's the German Air Force, were all ready and prepared to launch their operation on uh, on Britain. And uh, uh, Britain at this moment was steadily preparing itself, uh, making weapons from anything they could get their hands on. All heavy metals were being thrown into factories to produce uh, weapons and defence systems. All the money was being spent on defence and weapons. A lot of Brits really felt the squeeze um, and, you know, people were ra- uh, people had to deal with rationing. That means that uh, basic things like, you know, sugar and other, other products were rationed out. Very limited amounts were given to people. Um, obviously, it wasn't as bad as in as in many of the occupied countries, I imagine. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, of course. But um, I expect that having a bunch of Nazis from another country marching around your hometown, making themselves rather comfortable, was probably very difficult to take. Uh, so, you know, people like the Poles, the Czechs, the Belgians, the Dutch and the French, well, most of the French anyway, were no doubt having a pretty bad time as well, not to mention many other nations that I haven't mentioned. Uh, this is a world war, of course. So if I don't mention your country in this episode, then I'm sorry. But after all, this is the Battle of Britain that I'm talking about. But anyway, Britain was um, preparing itself for rather a bad time. Um, A lot of planes were being constructed, lots of weapons being made, um, and men were being trained to fly and fight in the air. Um, The Germans, at this point, were feeling pretty good about themselves, actually. Um, Morale was high. Morale is the word that we use to describe the general feeling amongst the team. Um, in the army, it's the general feeling amongst the soldiers, and morale can be high or low. If mor- if morale is high, then the soldiers are feeling confident and happy. If morale is low, then they feel, you know, depressed and despondent. So, um, for the Germans before uh, the Battle of Britain, morale was pretty high because they just walked all over Europe and they felt on top of the world. They basically felt absolutely superior. And this feeling was whipped up by the rhetoric of their charismatic, albeit completely insane, leader. Um, And they'd been led to believe that the world was theirs and that this was the natural order of things. Wrong, I'm afraid. Um, So the Nazis were pretty chuffed and they probably couldn't wait to have a go at Britain, um, which was, of course, one of the global superpowers of the time. Um, And so... Um, the Battle of Britain, or the, the German attacks during the Battle of Britain, amounted to, or certainly the, the, the first one on, on uh, the 7th of September, was the biggest aerial attack of World War II so far. And at 5pm on the 7th of September, the first wave of bombers uh, reached their targets in London. Apparently the sound that they made was really scary. It was a kind of low, depressing drone sound from the engines of the bombers as they flew over uh, the country towards London. And um, in London it was a Saturday afternoon. And when I think of Saturday afternoons back home, 
I always think of tea and sandwiches and football and my dad and stuff like that. I don't imagine death from above or, in fact, death from any direction for that matter. Uh, The planes arrived and targeted the industrial areas at first, uh, focusing on, you know, um, refineries and plants and things. But a lot of workers lived right next to those industrial areas and unfortunately their homes got bombed as well. But this was really just the beginning. What followed was a rain of bombs that no other city had ever seen in history. Twelve hours of bombing without a break, continuing throughout the night. A lot of people died and others were convinced that they would follow. Um, It makes me think, how did the pilots feel? How did the German pilots feel during these bombing raids? Well, according to interviews, they had rather mixed feelings. Uh, Really, they just hoped that they would hit their targets and complete their mission. But also, they knew that civilians were probably down there getting killed. Um, But really, I think they just felt a bit cut off from what was happening on the ground. But I expect that they didn't feel too proud of themselves. For the British people, particularly Londoners, I think this bombing created um, hopelessness in some, but also a gritty determination in others, as well as a visceral hatred of the Germans. Uh, The fires caused by the bombing... Uh, on that first night, lasted for 57 nights. The fires continued to burn for 57 nights. And in fact, these fires were more damaging than even the the bombs themselves. Uh, The Nazi strategy was to continue to bomb, terrorise and generally demoralise the nation. Um, Hitler expected Britain to just give up and surrender to Germany so that he could then turn his attention on the east. He knew that it would be unwise to attempt to invade Russia while also fighting on the Western Front. So victory in the West uh, here in Britain was a crucial part of Hitler's plan. And he expected Britain to surrender. And in fact, he underestimated us. What happened was it became a battle of wills embodied by two men. Hitler on one side and Churchill on the other side. And Churchill at this time became Hitler's nemesis. In fact, it was Churchill who rallied the British people and inspired them to carry on. And in fact, he echoed the sentiments of the nation that they would never give up and that they would never surrender. Uh, This is another speech now from Churchill. And here he is talking about the Blitz. The Blitz is what the Brits refer to as the Blitzkrieg. Um, you know, the bombing raids by the Germans. So this is uh, Churchill talking about the Blitz. And uh, here we go. Winston Churchill on the Blitz. These cruel, wanton, indiscriminate bombings of London are, of course, a part of Hitler's invasion plan. He hopes by killing large numbers of civilians and women and children that he will terrorize and cow the people of this mighty imperial city and make them a burden and anxiety to the government and thus distract our attention unduly from the ferocious onslaught he is preparing. Little does he know the spirit of the British nation or the tough fibre of the Londoners whose forebears played a leading part in the establishment of parliamentary institutions and who have been bred to value freedom far above their lives. 
Okay, so there he is saying uh, that Hitler has underestimated the British people and the fibre of the Londoners who um, have have been brought up to value freedom and democracy even higher than their own lives. Um, So uh, Hitler didn't expect Churchill to refuse to deal with him. In fact, Hitler seemed to expect uh, the British to want to make some kind of deal, maybe like they'd managed to do in France. Um, And so when Churchill refused to deal with Hitler, this may have been a bit of a surprise. Uh, But Britain was not going to be a walkover. Um, Now, the German Air Force earlier in the summer had already knocked out a lot of our warships in the English Channel, and they planned to launch surprise air attacks on England. But um, England had a technological advantage, and that was radar um, so this is all. This is now used in airports all over the world. Um, I'm sure you know what radar is. It's a kind of tracking device uh, to monitor the skies, and it can be used to uh, identify um, uh, aeroplanes in the sky. Okay, radar. Uh, radar was used as an early warning system during the world during World War II by the British, and it helped to let the RAF know if German bombers were on their way to England on bombing missions, and this allowed the RAF to scrap fighter planes into the skies in order to engage the German parties in combat. And the Luftwaffe had no idea that radar even existed. So when RAF planes suddenly turned up to meet them in the skies, it must have been a bit of a surprise. And um, the fighting in the sky, which happened daily, was essentially a duel of fighter pilots in single-man planes. Often, these were dogfights or one-on-one battles. Um, And if you can imagine the scene, um, for example, um, German bombers in formation uh, flying towards locations in England and um, uh, English fighter uh, planes coming to meet them in formation too and probably some sort of melee occurring where the fighter planes break from formation and start chasing each other around in the air, chasing each other, um, tracer bullets flying through the sky, chaos and destruction, explosions, burning planes falling out of the sky, all kinds of things going on. It must have been incredibly frightening for the pilots. And in fact, so many people were killed uh, during the Battle of Britain. Um, It's famous for um, its its sort of death toll that... um, Pilots in in the Battle of Britain weren't expected to last more than a few days or weeks. Um, So um, um, it it must have been incredibly scary. Um, And I think probably for the pilots, it was a question of trying to be aware of your surroundings around the plane and planning your attacks. And if you had the right strategy, then you would have the advantage and you'd find the enemy in a vulnerable position from which you could open fire and take out the plane. But if your strategy was bad, then you'd leave yourself open to attack and you might be shot down. Uh, the Germans were flying probably Messerschmitt 109s. Uh, the Brits were in hurricanes at the beginning of the, the, the battles. And then later on, Spitfires, which were introduced uh, later on. So... Um, Those are the planes that were being used. And there were so many deaths during these fights that the pilots basically accepted that they would almost certainly die sooner or later. Everyone just expected to die. And imagine how that felt for these men, living like that, in the knowledge that tomorrow or the next day would probably be your last. What would that do to your mind? Um, 
I'm sure that it was the same for both sides. Uh, For the Germans, there was the added fear that they would run out of petrol or that they would be forced to crash land in enemy territory and be taken captive. Um, The German pilots were actually forced by their superiors to always accompany the bombers on these missions, even if the smaller planes were running out of fuel. And sometimes these uh, missions amounted to suicide missions for the fighter pilots who simply didn't have enough fuel for the whole mission. Um, So many German pilots drowned as they had to bail out of their planes, uh, which ran out of fuel, um, and the pilots would would parachute and land in the English Channel often, uh, miles away from the land, uh, and um, many of these pilots would drown to death in the water. And so many wives, mothers, sisters and girlfriends lost men who were close to their hearts again and again on both sides. Um, Women didn't all stay at home worrying, though. Um, And in fact, in the RAF, uh, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force were an integral part of the British defences. And they worked in the operations room and helped to coordinate the fighters. So women performed an important role in this battle as well. Um, In the summer of 1940, the Germans had failed to break the RAF. So uh, their their first um, attempt to break the RAF by bombing key RAF locations had failed because of the British use of radar and also because of the um, the ability of the British pilots to to deal with um, the German bombers coming in. Maybe because of um, the extra edge that they got from using the Spitfire, which was an excellent uh, plane for for uh, these dogfights. Um, so, like on the 7th of September, uh, waves of German bombers came across the channel and the RAF planes took off to meet them, engaging them in mid-air combat. The German bombers were well-armed with machine guns and also they were flanked by fighter planes which engaged the RAF in more one-on-one dogfighting. And there were lots of bullets in the air. The German escorts managed to keep the RAF at bay, allowing the bombers to continue to London. And um, this is um, this is when large parts of the city were reduced to rubble. And to this day, it remains one of the characteristic things about the city of London, that there are gaps in the old buildings in which more modern buildings have been constructed. So it doesn't have the consistency, the architectural consistency of a city like Paris, because large parts of London were completely destroyed during the war and then rebuilt later. It's one of the kind of parts of London's personality. Of course, it wasn't just London. All of the main industrial cities in the UK took a heavy beating, particularly the city of Coventry in the Midlands, which got absolutely smashed in a huge bombing raid. And it's very sad because it was a beautiful and proud city with a magnificent cathedral, but that's now gone and it's replaced by more modern structures. But something essential was lost. And for years, Coventry has been like a ghost town for the people growing up there in the aftermath of the war. Um, Londoners had to hide from the bombing in cellars under houses or in specially made bomb shelters in gardens or even in underground stations, tube stations like Oval in South London. Um, Between September and November 1940, London was bombed over 300 times. Uh, Thousands of individual bombs were dropped. Um, London's children were evacuated, meaning that they were sent away for their own protection. Uh, Most of them went north into the countryside, away from the industrial targets. 
And that must have been a very emotional moment, having to say goodbye to children and parents. And I expect many of the parents thought that they would never see their kids ever again. Some kids were taken all the way to Canada from Liverpool, and unfortunately many were killed when their ship was torpedoed by a German submarine. Back in London, the RAF, with their radar and the brilliant Spitfire fighter planes, had something of an advantage in the air, although it was a very slight advantage. Uh, Goering, the military commander from Germany, did not achieve the results that he'd hoped for and decided to carry out all his bombing raids on London at night. So from that moment forwards, the skies at night were lit up with fire as London burned. And with the lack of accuracy in the dark, many residential areas all around London were hit by bombs and many civilians were killed. Nevertheless, London kept their morale, Londoners kept their morale and managed to carry on as normally as possible during the day, clearing up bomb damage, but also attempting to go about their daily business as usual. And uh, this is one of the things that kept the Germans at bay, the spirit of the people of Britain. And perhaps that's what uh, makes people so proud and causes them to say that this was Britain's finest hour. Uh, but the normality of daily life came to a sudden stop at approximately 5pm every day when everyone got into their bomb shelters and the raids began again. Even though many people managed to carry on, I'm sure that many of them were basically reduced to sort of walking around like zombies, expecting it all to be over by the end of the day. Uh, many of them, in fact, were ready for surrender, but they didn't. Um, now, I'd like to just uh, take this moment here to uh, give you another audiobook recommendation and since I'm talking about um, since I'm talking about the Battle of Britain the one that I'm going to recommend to you is called the Battle of Britain from the BBC archives and the, the interesting thing about this audiobook is that it's not just um, you know your standard history of the Battle of Britain in fact it's it's the Battle of Britain told by the people who were actually in it at the time so it's uh, all taken from the BBC's archives. Um, so the BBC's archives, um, the BBC has got incredible numbers of archives of interview, um, inter audio interviews with, with people throughout history. And there are lots of incredible bits of audio uh, from the Battle of Britain. And it includes just uh, audio of, of people responding to, to the bombing raids as they're happening, interviews with pilots, um, interviews with the key political figures of the time. So the whole story is told through the voices of the people who were actually involved at the time. And it's also narrated by um, someone called Tim Piggott-Smith, who's got uh, a great voice. And uh, I definitely recommend that you listen to it. Um, so I'm actually going to play a little sample of um, the Battle of Britain from the BBC archives. It's written by Mark Jones. It's narrated by Tim Piggott-Smith. And as I said, it contains lots of uh, samples of real, genuine Londoners who were involved in, um, in the battle when it actually happened. Here's a sample. Any second? What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. I remember thinking of the cloud of little black dots grew steadily nearer. This is it. This is what you've been waiting for. 
Carol, what's the Delta Flight going up there? There are four, five, six machines wheeling and turning around now. As you were flying over your own country, you could look down and see people and cars and houses and things on the ground which were yours. And you could see these bloody great ugly bastards coming over the coast. And you thought to hell with them. No way are they going to come over. Look, 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 look at those. Oh, yeah, boy. Oh, oh look at them over behind there, millions of them. The, the bombers. Oh, yeah, there's another one. I think they're bombers, too. Look at them. Yes, they are. They're German bombers. Well, look at them. As far as I'm concerned, uh, it was the one battle during the whole of the last war that couldn't be lost. The Battle of Britain was fought by a handful of young men, the legendary few, in the skies above southern England, in full view of the civilian population below. The country was braced for invasion, but determined to continue the war with Hitler, even though it was now fighting alone in Europe. The period of the phony war ended abruptly on May the 10th, 1940. When okay, so that was just a little extract from um, the Battle of Britain from the BBC archives. And it's available um, on audible.com. You can download it free if you uh, want to. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke. You can sign up to a 30-day trial with Audible. And in fact, you can choose any audiobook that you want, including this one. Um, you can download it free. And if you don't like the service, within 30 days, you can cancel your membership. And you can keep the audiobook. All the details of this offer are on my website um, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke and you can uh, sign up for your trial okay right that's the end of that little bit of publicity let me now carry on with the story of the Battle of Britain so the bombing continued all the way into the next year until May 1941 um, bombing raids accompanied by um, the uh, escort fighter planes um, engaged by the RAF in the skies. Um, okay, uh, Hitler called off the attacks on Britain, though, um, in May 1941, choosing instead to focus his attention on the East and Russia. However, that proved to be a problem for him because it left him open in the West. And later, when America joined the war, Britain became a vitally strategic position for the Allies. And it was from the south coast of England that uh, the Allies launched their major counterattack against the Nazis with a land invasion in Normandy, northern France which we we know now as D-Day um, in 1944, and that ultimately led to Allied forces getting all the way to Berlin. Um, so despite being a hero to the Brits, Churchill didn't emerge from World War II completely clean. Uh, there were large-scale bombing raids on Germany from Britain, and that included the destruction of Dresden and also massive damage to Berlin, largely as a response to the attacks on British cities. So is it our finest hour, I wonder? Well, you know, war is hell. Um, in the East, the Nazis struggled through bitterly cold and tough conditions fighting against the Russians. Many, many Russian lives were lost, as well as uh, lives of German soldiers. Um, ultimately, though, Hitler couldn't sustain a war on two fronts. The size and the resilience of the Russian army in the east proved too difficult for Hitler, but also his inability to crush the spirit of the Brits left him open on that side too. 
And the Battle of Britain proved to be Hitler's first major defeat in the war. And it was a decisive moment in World War II, representing a turning point in favour of the Allies. And Nazi soldiers didn't put a foot on British soil and the invasion never happened. But that's not the end of the story because I'd like to turn my attention to a particular squadron of pilots who made an extraordinary contribution to the Battle of Britain, a contribution that could have made all the difference. During the battle, Britain was hanging on by its fingernails. Every single day of combat, British resources were stretched to their absolute limit. Dozens of pilots and planes were lost every day over British skies, and they couldn't have carried on much longer. If Hitler had continued, he would probably have crushed the British spirit eventually, but he didn't. And Britain managed to hold on just long enough to keep the Germans at bay. And this, perhaps, is a pivotal moment that allowed the Allies to ultimately succeed in the war. Churchill called uh, uh, the Battle of Britain Britain's finest hour, as I've said. And famously, um, he talked about the pilots involved. um, And he said that, um, what was the phrase that he said? Never, never was so much owed by so many to so few. In fact, here is... Uh, Churchill saying uh, those words himself. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So um, it wasn't just British airmen, though, um, as I'm going to say in a moment. But what was it that gave Britain the edge? Well, it was partly radar, partly the brilliantly engineered Spitfire, which was specifically made as a bespoke fighter to keep up with and outpace the German planes, while holding extra fuel to keep pilots in the air longer. The Spitfire is now a national icon, and it has to be said it is a rather beautifully designed plane, with its rounded and curved wings and fuselage. So the the Spitfire gave people an edge as well, and the resilience of the British people, of course, and Winston Churchill with his moving um, speeches. But also it was the individual pilots involved in the flying. And there was this one squadron which stood out. That was the 303rd Squadron. Um, you might imagine that, imagine them to be a band of plucky young British gentlemen, but in fact they weren't. These men who, who may have saved Britain uh, were in fact foreigners from Poland. Um, so let me tell you about the 303rd Squadron. Um, the 303rd Squadron was one squadron of 16 Polish, largely Polish squadrons who flew with the RAF during the Battle of Britain, and they were pilots who had flown against the Germans previously, uh, but who had escaped to England when Poland was invaded. Um, They turned out to be the highest scoring RAF squadron during the Battle of Britain. And one of the pilots in particular was not in fact Polish, but of Czech origin. Um, And his name was Joseph Frantisek. I think that's how you say it. Joseph Frantisek, and he's perhaps the most famous member of the squadron and is famous for being one of the highest scoring allies during the Battle of Britain. The squadron chose its aim the squadron chose its own name. Oh. 
And uh, it's difficult for me to say the name, so I've checked it out on Google Translate. This is how you say it. Kościuszko. 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 Okay. So that was the name of the um, the squadron, the Kościuszko squadron. Um, and they chose that name after a, um, another flying squadron that had previously existed, another Polish flying squadron that was also called the Kosciuszko Squadron, and that had taken part in the Polish-Russian War in the 1920s. Um, so they, they named it after that uh, squadron. And in fact, the 303, or the Kosciuszko Squadron, contained some members from the previous one that had, fight, uh, that had fought in uh, the Russian-Polish uh, uh, war um, previously. So they were already a pretty distinguished flying team and pretty skilled uh, group of pilots. Um, it was made up of about 21 pilots and a number of ground staff as well. And um, so what was the prime reason for their success during these air battles? Well, it may have been their experience and their skill, but also to a large extent, it was their anger and a vicious hatred of the Nazis. And this, for them, was like a high-energy fuel um, for these men who just couldn't wait to take down Nazi planes at the earliest opportunity. Um, but their opportunities to do that were slow to come. In fact, the team was based in Northolt in England, and they were assigned two RAF officers to look after them. And the officers were responsible for training the Polish pilots in RAF protocol, but also in the basic English necessary to follow orders and instructions. So bef even before the pilots uh, got a chance to take to the skies, they were forced to sit through weeks and weeks of English lessons. And I imagine in those days, it was pretty mind-numbing stuff. There was certainly no Luke's English podcast at that time. So it must have been very frustrating for them in the, in the early days, and they didn't really get involved in the conflict um, until a bit later on. So um, even though they entered the conflict later, they still managed to to get the highest number of uh, uh, of like uh, kills, I suppose, during during the conflict. Um, so after sitting around having to endure some English lessons until they were sort of fluent enough in English to follow the rules and protocol and to communicate with the um, with the ground staff. Um, they eventually were allowed to start getting involved in training flights. And apparently the Polish pilots were so desperate to get at the Germans that during one of these training flights, when a party of German planes was spotted in the vicinity, one of the Polish pilots called Ludwig Paski... Uh, how do I say this name? Paski... Uh, uh, hold on. Okay, I think it's Ludwig Paskiewicz. Um so one of the Polish pilots called Ludwig Paskiewicz broke formation and he tore after the German planes. So imagine like these Polish pilots on a training run, all boring, and then somewhere in the vicinity they were uh, German planes were identified and one of the pilots just just took off away from the rest of the formation and just went on a, a mission to try and get as many German planes as he could. Um, and he managed to shoot down a German Messerschmitt BF 110. And so after that, the RAF officers were so convinced um, and they, they were convinced that he, uh, they were willing and able to, to 
to uh, engage the Germans in battle. And so the next day, the very next day, the squadron was immediately put into action. And this was the beginning of an incredible run of missions in which the 303 squadron scored a record-breaking number of kills in the air, even after having uh, entered the combat later than everyone else. Apparently, these guys were absolutely incredible. Again, fueled by a bitter hatred of the Germans, the pilots just pushed everything that little bit further, going out of their way, taking incredible risks to take down as many planes as possible. But also, their use of the British Hurricane fighter planes that they used at the beginning and later on the the Spitfire planes, their actual control and use of these planes was also a big advantage for them too. Because previously, they'd flown much more basic planes that were less powerful and less well-engineered. And as a result of this, they'd honed their flying skills considerably. They had to learn how to control these rather uh, uh, more basic planes in the past. And so now when they were equipped with much better machines, particularly Spitfires, um, they uh, suddenly became incredibly adept at flying. And, And so in their previous planes, they'd been used to having to fly much, much closer to the enemy in order to get accurate hits. But in the Hurricanes and Spitfires, with their increased speed and firepower, the pilots still continued to fly very close to the enemy planes like they'd done before, but this time the results were devastating. The German planes just didn't stand a chance. And later, the squad were equipped, as I said, with Spitfires, and this made all the difference. So number 303 Squadron claimed the largest number of aircraft destroyed of the 66 Allied fighter squadrons engaged in the Battle of Britain, even though it joined the fray two months after the battle had begun. Um, Joseph uh, Frantischek was a particularly successful pilot, and he was considered by his commanding officers, actually, to be ill-disciplined and a danger to other pilots when flying in formation. But he was devastatingly successful at taking down Germans. And in the end, he was actually given by his commanding officers the right to break away from formation and go out on solo missions to pick off as many enemy planes as he wanted. And in this way, Frantischek was able to fight his own private war against the Germans, allowing him to take down at least 18 planes in one month, and he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Medal. But sadly, on the 8th of October 19, uh, 1940, Frantischek's hurricane crashed in Ewell, Surrey, during during a landing approach after a patrol. Reasons for the crash are not really known, but according to some theories, he may have been making ac- uh, aerobatic figures. He may have been... Uh, turning the plane, flipping the plane in the sky in order to impress his girlfriend on the ground. Or it might have been just the result of battle fatigue and physical exhaustion. But uh, for whatever reason, unfortunately, he crashed in 1940 in October after having taken down so many German planes. And so unfortunately, he never lived to see the end of the war. But the success of the 303 Squadron in combat can be mainly attributed to the years of extensive and rigorous pre-war training uh, many of the long-serving Polish veterans had received in their homeland, far more than many of their younger and uh, inexperienced RAF comrades uh, uh, then at the time being thrown into battle. Tactics and skill also played a role, as well as a daring commitment to bringing down the enemy. 
on one occasion, for example, um, a member of the 303 Squadron called Sergeant Stanislav Karubin resorted to extreme tactics to bring down a German fighter. So um, after a prolonged air battle, Karubin was chasing a German fighter at treetop level. So that's incredibly low to the ground, just at treetop level. He was chasing this German fighter. And as he closed in on the tail of the German fighter, Karabin realised that his hurricane had run out of ammunition. No more bullets. So rather than turning back to base, he actually closed the distance between him and the German plane and climbed right above the German fighter. So he was flying directly above the German plane. And the German pilot was so shocked to see the underside of the hurricane within arm's reach of his cockpit, so just above his plane, that he instinctively reduced his altitude in order to avoid a collision with the plane, and he crashed into the ground. So even when he had no uh, bullets left in his machine guns, uh, this guy, Stanislav Karabin, still managed to take down a German plane. Um, Now, after World War II... Poland was occupied by Soviet forces and its borders were redrawn as part of the 1945 Potsdam Conference and Poland became enveloped into the the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. And I'm not sure how many Polish people feel about what happened after World War II. I understand that there is is some uh, bitterness at the Allies and probably Britain in particular about this that perhaps we sold out the Polish or we forgot about them or we betrayed them by not securing their freedom. Uh, Many sad things happen at an international diplomatic level during or in the aftermath of war. Uh, They are regrettable. Um, I wonder how many Poles generally... I, I wonder how Polish people generally view Britain these days. Is there any resentment there after what happened at the end of the war? Or is that just a thing of the past? Um, Let me know, by the way. Um, If you're Polish and you're you're a regular listener to this podcast, or even if you're just listening to the first time, um, let me know. uh, What do most Polish people think about Britain and what happened in the war and and so on? I'd like to know. Leave your comments on the page for this episode. Um, Nowadays, a lot of Polish people live and make their living in the United Kingdom. In London, for example, there's a very large Polish community. Where I used to live in Hammersmith, uh, there's the Polish Cultural Centre just up the road from my uh, flat. And many Polish people live in the area. Um, I guess for many of them, it's a chance or moving to England is a chance for them to get more opportunities for living in the UK. Uh, And I'm pretty proud to be part of a country that offers opportunities for people from other places. And it's clear to me that residents from other nations can bring a lot of skills and benefits to the country they move to. I'm not one of these people who complains about immigrants stealing people's jobs. Immigrants are often skilled people who can contribute a lot, as we saw from the example of the 303rd Squadron, who might have given the RAF an edge over the Germans in the Battle of Britain. Maybe they're the ones who saved the day and helped Britain to stay free, allowing us all to indulge in these nostalgic memories about our finest hour, in which we stood up to the Nazis when all hope was lost. Um, So that is the end of the story, and that's also the end of this episode. Please leave your thoughts on the page as usual. Um, That's it. I've been going for... um, 
oh, how long? About 50 minutes or something like that. So that's it then. That brings this episode to a close. Um, It's been nice talking to you. I hope that you've managed to keep up with this history of the Battle of Britain. Um, I hope that you haven't fallen asleep, unless, of course, that's what you want to do, because I know that... um, Uh, sometimes people listen to this as they're going to sleep. So maybe I've lulled you into a nice peaceful slumber. If that's the case, then good. Continue sleeping and have nice dreams involving perfect English grammar and sentence structure and good pronunciation. Okay. Let my words now let you drift off to sleep. Um, If you are not asleep and you're still wide awake, then good for you. You managed to maintain consciousness throughout the episode. Um, Go to the page for this episode on teacherluke.co.uk. You'll find pretty much everything I've said written down. Yes, this has been a scripted episode. Um, and uh, and that's pretty much it. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you've done a good thing. Your English has improved uh, a little bit. You've just taken a little notch up by listening to that. Uh, if you want to look at the words that I've um, used in this episode, if you found there were words in there that you didn't know, then they're all there. All the words are printed on the page for this episode on my website. Okay, I'm now going to stop talking. Thank you for listening. It's just time for me to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. It's me again. The episode isn't finished. I said that it was, but I'm actually adding a little bit to the end. Um... In fact, I uploaded this episode uh, a couple of days ago, and since then, uh, the episode has received a few comments on the website, and so I'm now recording this um, little sort of uh, extra message um, a couple of days after uploading the episode. So the reason I'm doing that is because I want to just read out a couple of comments that I received uh, from listeners to the podcast. Uh, One in particular here which kind of corrects some of the things that I said. And I think it's sort of valuable and and worth mentioning these corrections. Okay, so um, uh, let me start with the first one, which is from a guy called Rasul. And um, this is the one that includes a couple of historical uh, corrections. Um, So Rasul said, Thank you for this great episode, Luke. As is often the case with history, the Battle of Britain is one of those World War II episodes that you, you would... You would have a general idea about, but somehow never got round to finding out about properly. So it's nice to get an account of these historic events in podcast form and to hear the actual recordings of those famous Churchill speeches. Also, I'd like to make a couple of comments regarding some of the facts that you mentioned that aren't directly related to the Battle of Britain. You mentioned the Eastern Front and the Russians who fought against the Nazis. I know it's a common generalisation among Americans and Europeans to refer to the USSR as Russia, probably due to the fact that Russia was the founding member of the Soviet state and indeed is biggest and its biggest and most influential part. However, it wasn't all Russia and it wasn't just Russians that Hitler was fighting against, but the Soviet Union which included other republics besides Russia. Um, As the Germans naturally came from the West, the westernmost Soviet republics, such as Belarus and Ukraine, were among the first to be attacked in the summer and autumn of 1941. Not wishing to sound too pedantic here, but the USSR, also known as the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Army, also known as the Red Army, would be the correct terms to use in the context of World War II. Also, I'm not sure what exactly you mean when you talk about Poland becoming enveloped in the Soviet Union. 
But just to be clear, Poland wasn't part of the Soviet Union, at least not after World War II. It was, of course, part of the Soviet Union-led Eastern Bloc, i.e. one of the countries belonging to the so-called Warsaw Pact, with all the dubious benefits which that enforced membership entailed. So that's the first comment, Razul, and I think that's... um, um, so that basically, that's just something I wanted to add into the episode, just because I think it's a valuable correction. Yes, I was, first of all, talking about um, Russia, when I should have been talking about um, uh, the USSR, or the Soviet Union, and I should have been talking about the, the Red Army, or the Soviet Army, not the Russians. So, that's worth fixing. And the second thing, yes, is is just that clarification of the fact that obviously Poland didn't become part of the Soviet Union. It in fact just became part of the Eastern Bloc, which was basically run by the Soviet Union. So yeah, I made a bit of a mistake there. And there was a sloppy mistake that I shouldn't have made, uh, especially in a sort of important historical uh, episode like this one. But, um, you know, that's the sort of, uh, that's the cool thing about Luke's English podcast, that uh, someone like Razul can make that correction and it's all fine. It's In fact, I appreciate it very much. And I think that it's okay that I can just come back and fix these things in post-production like this. So thank you for your uh, correction, Razul. I appreciate it very much. Um, let's see, who else? Uh, Yaron um, said, great episode, very engaging. We should learn from history. War is hell although sometimes it's inevitable, like in those dark days of the Nazis. I hope that we're not going towards World War Three with all these crazy things that are happening around us. Um, and um, let's see, do I have any others? Um, <laughs> okay, so here's one from Olga. And Olga says, first of all, I should say thank you, Luke, for a, a good beginning of my day, as usual. You're welcome. Finally, I bought new headphones, so now I hear nothing but you. I also should say thank you for, for recording this episode. I listened to it twice in order to catch everything you and also Churchill said. There are, some, there are many facts and details which I hadn't heard before. According to the programme of school books of world history, there were only two passages about this, and if you want to know more, you should read additional literature. I try to stick to one simple rule, learn something new every day. Thank you for making it possible. And Olga goes on to say, I should say that this episode reminded me, of course, of the episode from Doctor Who called The Empty Child, when the Doctor and his companion Rose Tyler were in London during the Blitz of World War II. So when I listened to this episode, I had the picture of this um, programme in my mind. Um, And she says, shame on me, but I hadn't heard about the 303 Squadron. Of course, I know who is Kushevitsko, but I hadn't heard about the 303 Squadron, and I've already started Googling it. Um, And she goes on to talk about uh, the Enigma code. She said, I also didn't understand about the Enigma machine, because one of the other listeners commented about it. Somebody said it was Polish mathematicians who first cracked the German Enigma code and then gave it to the British to carry on the good work. That was a comment made by a previous uh, commenter. Uh, And she and Olga says, I think everybody knows about Alan Turing thanks to the imitation game. He's the guy who decrypted German intelligence codes for the British government during World War II. So here we're talking about the Enigma machine. And another listener, uh, who was it who talked about the Enigma machine? Uh, let's see. I'm just trying to find that comment at this point. Maybe. Uh, anyway, um, uh, someone from Poland commented uh, on this episode um, saying that 
among the contributions that were made uh, to the war effort by the Polish um, was um, the work on the Enigma machine um, relating to how uh, German intelligence encrypted messages were decoded. And apparently the first work on decoding these messages was done by uh, Polish uh, intelligence officers. And then later on that was carried out by uh, British intelligence officers, including um, Alan Turing, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the film um, The Enigma Code. So that's what uh, Olga's talking about here. She said that... um, she found that there were several stages in the work on on the Enigma code. First, there were Polish. Uh, there was the Polish breakthrough, and then the English. So, there um, Polish mash- mathematician Marian Radziewski and former Poznan University mathematics graduates Henrik Zagalski and oh, how do I say this name? Jerzy Rozki. I'm sorry if I'm saying those names wrong. Um, but anyway, those are the names of the two uh, Polish uh, math- mathematicians who worked on the uh, Enigma code. Apparently, they got the first results in cracking the Enigma. Uh, and then near the end of 1932, Rajowski was tasked to work on breaking the Enigma code for a couple of hours per day. In December 1932, the Bureau provided Rajewski with some German manuals and monthly keys. The material enabled Rajewski to achieve one of the most important breakthroughs in cryptologic history by using the theory of permutations and groups to work out the Enigma scrambler wiring. So they, there we go. Some of the early work was, was done by uh, Polish mathematicians and then it was apparently carried on by uh, the Brits. Um um, a couple of other comments before we just bring this to a close. Uh, Ksenia said, this is another brilliant podcast about history, Luke. You do manage to make engaging podcasts about her- historical events. Thumbs up. Thanks. Thank you, Ksenia. Um, thank you for recommending the audiobook from the BBC archives. I will certainly listen to it. This episode reminded me of the part of Agatha Christie's autobiography when she talks about how she lived in London during the Blitz. I was utterly perplexed when I read something like this from her book. Life continued as usual. During the day we ran errands and in the night we would go to the bomb shelters. It was the first time when I realised that life does, not, life does continue even when the war is on. Thanks for that, Ksenia. Um, let's see. Okay, final comment here. There are others, but this is this will be the final comment I, I make. And this is from Jacek. And he says, Hi, Luke. I was nicely surprised by the prominence you gave to Polish 303 Squadron in your Battle of England, or Battle of Britain, in fact, episode. It's not that I believe such prominence is undeserved, but having a lot of British friends, I have often got involved in discussions with them about the roles of our countries in World War II. So I'm assuming that Jacek here is is Polish. Um, And he says, More often than not, I've been reminded by my British friends that it was the British who saved our arses, for which we should be grateful. Whenever I brought up the story of 303 Squadron, I was met usually with... I was usually met with total ignorance on their part, or a shrug and a comment dismissing the significance of our pilots' role during the war. So your praise for the skills and bravery of Polish pilots is definitely appreciated. As for the attitude towards the UK, I haven't met even one Pole who would harbour 
uh, any hard feelings towards the Brits. Although the generation of my parents might feel disappointed that Great Britain didn't do more to stop the Soviet Union from enslaving our country for 50 years, still, you did take good care of all those people who had to leave the country in the 40s and 50s, allowing Polish uh, Uh, the Polish exile government to fight for freedom. Finally, I have to say that your podcasts are getting better and better. I run an English language school in Warsaw and I recommend your podcast to all new students. Great job. Thank you, Jacek. Okay, so thanks for your comments, listeners. And um, thank you also for your, you know, corrections to any of the things I, I... sort of let's see got slightly wrong in this episode not much i think generally the the history i hope the most of the things i said were correct i you know i did my research and stuff but yeah fair enough not russia soviet union and poland not part of the soviet union of course no just part of the eastern bloc behind the iron curtain let's say okay that's the end of this episode i'm uh, i'm now going to uh, stop talking and let you go about your day all right thanks for listening speak to you again soon bye 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 normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.